When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to read this like six or seven times, and I still don't have a handle on what the Lord is trying to say here. The idea is that uh, Jonah is so upset about the destruction of such a small thing, but is looking forward to the destruction of such a big thing. And God's like, you really want all these people to die? And also this cattle? (laughs) And and the cows. What about the cows? Yeah. What about the cattle, Jonah? You (laughs) never think of the cattle. (laughs) Hey, everybody. I am Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we seek to increase the public's access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are you doing today, Dan? You know, it's uh it's it's giant fish day here right. on uh, here on Data Over Dogma, so I'm I'm happy about it. The deadliest. I once uh, of I once caught a fish this big. <laughs> or should I say it once caught me? It, or should it, I say it <laughs> once caught me? Yeah, uh, so we're going to be talking some some Jonah stuff, and that, look, here's what today's episode is about. You and I, you just said it uh, when, off the air. It's about ways that God is characterized in the Bible that might surprise you. Yeah. So, uh, so stay tuned because we're getting into uh, this this guy, this character of God is not one character. He, yeah. There's there's you know. You'd like to talk, Dan, about the univocality, the non-univocality of this book. And right. it becomes clear the more you read it, There's uh, these different authors have a different view of who and what uh, God is, and we're going to be delving into it. Yeah, this is something that I've said a handful of times. There's, there is no God of the Bible in the sense that there are numerous different gods of the Bible, and we're going to talk about two very different representations uh, in the book of Jonah and also in the book of Genesis. All right. Well, let's let us uh, dive into that with chapter and verse. So I think we should start. Uh, the book of Jonah is short. It is mercifully short. Mm-hmm. It is uh, four chapters, very readable. And I I got to say, I I read it multiple times sort of in prep for the show and you know, the thing that we all remember and the thing that, you know, you the reason that we all know this story is because you tell you tell it to kids because it's got this fish thing in the middle. It's got this thing where he gets gulped up by a fish. But that's like not the interesting part of this story for me. No. I mean, it's fascinating. It's yeah, okay. He he lives for three days inside of a fish. That's crazy. <laughs> but like the relationship between Jonah and God and how and and how they both act in this thing it's got me baffled man it's got yeah. me baffled so i so let's go through it uh, i'm going to launch us in we start basically there's no act 1 to this story we are 
diving into the middle of the story because suddenly, I, and I literally went to the book beforehand just to see, is there any setup to this at all? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, so verse one says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, yeah. I need to know, do we have any previous references to wickedness of Nineveh? Where is Nineveh? Where is Jonah? Who's what? It it literally starts very much in media res. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, and, and there's a reason for that. Uh, but So Jonah, the son of Amittai, is mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25, okay. which would purport to set this story uh, pretty early in the first millennium BCE. Uh, now, the problem with that is that it mentions Nineveh, the great city, which was made the capital of Assyria long after okay. the second, the book of Second Kings places uh, Jonah, the son of Amittai. Uh, so we have a, an Assyrian king, I uh, believe it was Sennacherib, who moves the capital of Assyria to Nineveh. And so the story seems to be written from a much later perspective, looking back at uh, claiming to be from a much earlier time. Okay. Now, the Assyrians were uh, just the ultimate villains in the time period in which the story was probably written, which is probably uh, going to be... 7th century at the very earliest, but probably a little later than that. Okay. One of the things that Sennacherib did was invade uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and come down into Judah uh, during the reign of Hezekiah. And this just totally decimated uh, the land, and Sennacherib was ultimately unsuccessful in taking uh, the capital city of Jerusalem. The king Hezekiah had thrown off vassalage. Up to that point, they had been paying a tribute to Assyria, and then Hezekiah said, not going to do it, wouldn't be prudent. And so Sennacherib came through, and the idea is just devastate the whole land and then say, pay me my money. And um, one of the, there's a, a story that is memorialized in um, some wall reliefs so imagery carved into a wall in a palace in Nineveh that commemorates the taking of a city called Lachish, which was the second most populous, most important city in Judah in that time period, second only to Jerusalem. And that was uh, Sennacherib's base of operations. But on, in this wall relief, we can see representation of the Assyrian army, army laying siege to uh, the city of Lachish, and they have siege engines, they have uh, archers, they have people slinging rocks, and then the people of Lachish are throwing down torches, they're throwing down rocks, they're trying to fend them off, and the Assyrians are decapitating people, the Assyrians are skinning people, the Assyrians are impaling people on pikes, the Assyrians are taking the survivors and marching them back to Assyria to be scattered around the Assyrian Empire so that basically their ethnic identity is destroyed. This all sounds very unpleasant. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, and when you <laughs> and you can see these uh, these wall reliefs have been um, 
for lack of a better word, stolen and now appear in the British Museum. But you can go walk through and you can see Sennacherib's representation of basically brutalizing this city and these people. Uh, oh, I in, think I have seen that. Have you? Now that now that I think about it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, you're kind of like walking around. There's some corners and a lot of yeah, flat, yeah. and and a lot of it's kind of fragmentary. And so this is this representation of Sennacherib is this brutal dictator who comes through and just murders um, indiscriminately and mercilessly. This is how the Assyrians were thought of in this time period. So okay. the idea that God would come to a prophet and say, "Hey, guess what? Destruction to Nineveh" would be <laughs> An exciting time. Okay, but that's not what happens. That's not what happens. Because no, because Jonah is told to go to... First of all, this is the worst job you can be given by God. I understand. <laughs> so, like God says, go to the place that you hate the most and tell everybody there that they are wicked, which I, in general, people don't respond well to. <laughs> I'm just going to say, I wouldn't want to have to go do that. Yeah. And Jonah doesn't want to do it either and literally runs away from God. Yes. Uh, he he flees to Tarshish, which uh when I looked it up, a lot of play, a lot of maps had Tarshish located in Spain. Yeah, so Tarshish is uh is not it's a word that means sea. Okay. And so there are some people who try to identify it with specific locations, but I think it's probably kind of a uh, a Timbuktu kind of okay, just this a, place far away, a stand-in for not here. Yeah, yeah. But he's so, trying to get he's trying to get out from underneath the from un, un for out from the presence of the Lord. He yes, is, uh, and he that's is, and that's a good way to put it because this is a specific literary genre that we're talking about. We're talking about a prophetic text. And in prophetic text, the the first thing you do is situate the prophet in a specific time period. And then you have the call, the prophet's call. And usually that is either taking place in the temple or results in the prophet going up to the temple. You always went up to the temple, mm. even if it was downhill, because it was spiritually higher. Right. And so if you're in Israel, you go up to Jerusalem. If you're in Jerusalem, you go up to the temple. But what does Jonah do? Jonah goes down. Mm. He went down to Joppa. Yeah. He went down into the ship. And then when he's in the ship, he goes down into the uh, the bottom of the ship. So yeah. Jonah is the anti-prophet. Jonah is doing the opposite of what this genre typically represents the prophet doing. Instead of going up to the presence of God, Jonah is going down to escape the presence of God. I'll tell so, you what, all that going down, that is a good way to get yourself caught in a fish. Yeah, as the great poet once said. Um, <laughs> yes. And so... He is, he's doing everything exactly opposite of what is expected. So this generates some narrative tension uh, for folks who are familiar with the prophetic genre but are hearing the story for the first time. This is a bit of a head scratcher. What's going on? This would be, this is the big leagues. This is the dream assignment to go tell the Assyrians that God is coming for them. Uh, And so we've got, we've got some narrative tension that is not going to get resolved until the very end. Now um, I'm going to I'm going to jump in here and ask one thing. Okay. You know, we have talked about how each region, each people have their own deity in this in in this uh time and place. Mm-hmm. 
So presumably the Assyrians have their own god. Yes. The 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 uh, the Ninevians, Ninevites, <laughs> right? Uh, have their own god. So when uh, Jonah is meant to go there and call call them to account, he's he's going on behalf of a god that isn't their god. That's a is there a tension there? Um, well, for the, the audience, there would not have been because this is probably coming from a time period when they accept Adonai as the god of the whole earth. Okay. So, so we've, we've gotten that far. I, I, I think that's probably likely. And if that's the case, then it's later than the 7th century. It's, it's more like late 6th century, maybe 5th century. It's, um, that, I think that makes the most sense of that notion. But at the same time, you do have some... Um, some notion of uh, gods kind of beating up on other nations. However, they could not have gotten away with saying our God beats up on Assyria when Assyria was actually powerful because that right. was, would be absolutely laughable because Assyria owned uh, these folks. So either this was something intended to be kind of thumbing the nose at Assyria, kind of internally just making fun of them, or it was written after Assyria was gone, had been defeated by the Babylonians. Right. But normally, yeah, that would be the situation. That's that's Asher's territory. That's Asher's purview. Well, we, we, we don't want to step on Asher's toes. No, absolutely not. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we're on a boat now. Uh, we're running away from from our God, um, we being, I, I guess we are now all Jonah. Mm-hmm. And there's a big tempest. Uh, the, all the sailors are, are freaking out. Uh, meanwhile, s- somehow Jonah is a very heavy sleeper and is <laughs> sleeping through everything. They have to wake him up. Whose fault is this? They actually draw lots to see whose fault it is. Apparently that's a good way to determine who the who the problematic one is on the mm-hmm. boat, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it turns out to be Jonah. Yep. Who who eventually admits that yes, uh, I'm running away from God, and they're like, well, what do we do? And he doesn't. I, he has an interesting solution to the whole thing. It's not what would have jumped immediately to my <laughs> mind, but uh, I in what becomes a theme for Jonah, he says, "Kill me now." Uh, in, in a sense, he says, throw me into the sea and it will quiet down for you. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing to do. Uh, it scares the crap out of the sailors because the sailors, they, then they have to, and they've all prayed to their own gods to no avail. Now, I guess they pray to Jonah's God who has caused all of this to say, Hey, don't get mad at he's telling us to throw him off. Don't get mad at us when we don't get uh, we shouldn't get into trouble just because we threw the guy off when he told us to. Okay, that's how I interpret. Is that is that about right? Yeah. Uh. D- yeah. Well, oh, please, oh Lord, they say in verse fourteen. Please, oh Lord, we pray. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood. For you, oh Lord, has have done as it pleased you. Uh, presumably meaning uh, you cause you're the one that caused this storm. We're just trying to appease you. Uh, yeah. Well, don't. it's, it sounds like they're, they're that's the, the last option. He's like, throw yeah. me overboard. And they're like, let's try to make it to land. And <laughs> yeah. then they're like, look, God, whatever you're doing, we're not a part of this. And now, um, you know, please don't get upset at us for doing this. Yeah. <laughs> it also, 
it also seems like uh, throw yourself overboard, man. Don't <laughs> don't put this on us. But yeah. they do it like he's just sitting there, like okay, I'll I'll just stand over here. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, they do it. They throw him overboard, uh, and then the seas are calm, and that's fine. And <laughs> then the fish thing happens. He's Jonah is swallowed up by a presumably giant fish. Uh, the Hebrew is dagadol, which just means great fish. Okay, so some kind of big fish. Uh, that's a, that's a very, you know I've seen the Mediterranean. It doesn't generally support very large fish, but okay, yeah. we have a very large fish that eats Jonah. And he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a that's a long time to be in a fish. Uh, <laughs> long gives, time to be going without oxygen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and swimming around in digestive fluids and whatever. But he seems to be okay. Uh, it it gives you time to come up with a very long, uh, weird, poetic prayer. Yeah, which he which he delivers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't, I didn't, as I read through it, I didn't see anything that was like too interesting. Although you, now that you've talked about like going up to the whole, to the temple, part of the prayer is, shall I look again upon your holy temple? Like, so now we've got him sort of yearning once more to be at the temple, uh, which is interesting. And then, uh, and then eventually, you know, the 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 prayer is good enough, and uh, the Lord speaks to the fish, and it hurks him out onto the dry land. Yeah, and he he says, "I will, I will sacrifice to you. I will do what I have vowed. Basically, I'll 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 do what you told me to do. Since this, yeah. since I'm a prophet, um, that's uh, why I get the big bucks. So." I'm going to do what you say. And Adonai speaks to the fish and says, hey, induce yourself to vomit uh, Jonah up. (laughs) And he vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And one interesting thing about this story is that the fish actually changes sex. Uh, It's originally referred to as a dog, which is just the masculine form of the noun fish. But at the end of Jonah 2 verse 2, it refers to the belly of Hadagah which would be the feminine form of that noun. Uh, And so, yeah, and then at the end of the story, the fish is masculine again. So that's something that that has caused some commentators uh, a little bit of acid reflux uh, over the centuries. What's going on? For anyone who wants to deny trans identities, we refer you to Jonah's fish. Yeah, Jonah's fish. Uh, There you go. uh, So anyway, Jonah's back on land. He has promised to do good. I think that's a good moment for us to take a brief break. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So, when we last left our hero, uh, he (laughs) he was vomit. Mm-hmm. And he was on uh, on dry land again, yeah. And headed back to Nineveh, or headed to Nineveh, to which presumably he had never been before. Uh, most likely, he had never been there. And it, I'm I'm looking for the message that that God says to declare to Nineveh. So this is Jonah three verse four. At the end of forty days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Period. Okay. So this is not a conditional prophecy. Right. This is not repent lest ye be overthrown. This is 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So we've got a very definitive uh, black and white prophecy here. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, so Jonah 3 verse 2, has said, just right before that says, uh, is the Lord saying, get up, go to Nineveh, uh, and uh, tell it the message that I tell you. So we can assume that that message, that 40 days thing, that Jonah is now walking through the streets of Nineveh, Nineveh shouting to people, yep. is actually the Lord's message that 40 days is coming. You better, uh, you, you, you better repent. Yeah. And this is, and that, and that raises an interesting point. We are likely to assume that that was precisely the message, but as we're going to see, maybe this is Jonah's editorializing. Yeah, um, because, it, it because yeah, there is some question there. Yeah, uh, I just want to point out the next thing that happens in this story is maybe the most remarkable thing I've ever read in the Bible <laughs> because you read in the Bible a lot about people being called to repentance, and almost every time you hear like the people are like, nah. No yeah. thanks. Yeah, this guy uh, again. We're doing good. We're fine. Yeah. And you know, it it doesn't end well. The whole world gets <laughs> flooded or, you know, all of the firstborn of your of your people are killed or whatever. <laughs> but in but apparently Nineveh was in a contrite moment because mm-hmm. everybody, and I do mean everybody in Nineveh suddenly goes, "Oh, God's mad at us? Well, darn, let's just completely repent. Yeah. And they all do. They declare a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Uh, The king hears about it, gets up from his throne, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, sat in ashes. This is prototypical uh, Israelite mourning uh, convention. Yeah. And so everybody hears Jonah's message and takes it to heart. Yeah, apparently um, none of them knew. They were wait, we were being we were being wicked. Us? Are you serious? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, and then you guys. we have this decree uh issued by the king. No human or animal, cattle or sheep is to taste anything. They must not eat and they must not drink water. Every person and animal must put on sackcloth and must cry <laughs> earnestly to God. 
And cry earnestly to God, and everyone must turn from their evil way of living and from the violence that they do. And then here's the the um, the interesting part. Who knows? Maybe <laughs> God will relent and change his mind. Right. He may uh, turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. First of all, I want everybody to imagine all of those cows and everything in sackcloth. Yeah, and, and crying out to God. Their their <laughs> owners going, cry out to God. <laughs> Moo to Moo. God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, the whole, okay, if there's one thing we can say about omnipotence and, and omniscience, it's kind of that you don't really have to change your mind ever because you already know what's you know everything that's going to happen. Yeah, and we actually have in the book of Numbers in um, chapter uh, 22 or 23, I forget exactly where the verse is, but in response to Balak pleading with Balaam to change his prophecy and his curse, Balaam says, God is not a man that he should lie or a human that he should change his mind. He cannot go back on what he decrees. And so the Ninevites here are... Like, eh, maybe God will change their mind. Um, and then Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil ways, and I assume this means they successfully got their cattle to dress in sackcloth and cry <laughs> I, out to God. I don't see how you can interpret it any other way. Yeah, I mean, that's that <laughs> goes without saying. God changed his mind about the evil, the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And that word for change his mind is the word that is um, naham, is the verbal root, and it is translated to repent frequently. Oh, when it's that's used right. In God repents. To, yeah. Ch- repents or changes uh, their mind. And so yeah. this explicitly has God going, good point. Okay. I okay. am changing my mind. My bad, and, you guys. I was just mad. <laughs> Yeah, I was just a little bit upset. But this brings us to the money shot. This is where we get the big reveal. We get into um, to Jonah chapter four, but this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. Yeah. Then then he prays to God, "Oh Adonai, is this not what I said?" While I was still in my own country, that is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. So what Jonah is saying is, you want to know why I (laughs) ran the opposite direction? You want to know why I did not take the dream assignment to go preach destruction to Nineveh? It's because I knew you would forgive them, and I would rather die than watch it, the Assyrians be forgiven. It's so crazy to me. Like, I, when I first read this, I read it so, I had to like Google, why is Jonah angry? Because it <laughs> didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. That like, he, he succeeded. He went, he called them to repentance. Somehow he was so effective that they all believed him and did it. They actually did it, which is shocking. And, and then you got to like, imagine it was pretty half-hearted on his part, too. Uh, yeah. He was probably yeah. like, I don't know, uh, he's uh, repent or something. Plus, he smells like fish. It's like it was <laughs> it was a bad time, but like he's so effective, he actually achieves the goal that is set out before him, and he is furious about yeah. it. Yeah, 
Just, I want to die. Just kill me now. If you're going to forgive them and be nice to them, just kill me because I don't want any part of it. And and I think it's an interesting story about, because we're doing a couple things here. We're taking the prophetic genre and we're turning it on its head. And we're doing everything the opposite of what's expected. It's like starting out a story with Once Upon a Time, but then, you know, it's it's like Romeo and Juliet with Leo DiCaprio, where it's like, <laughs> this is not Once Upon a Time. This is 1996. Yeah. Um, and it's flipping all the expectations on its head. But then we're taking this, uh, we're also including a bit of um, satire, because we've got, um, you know, Jonah's like, tell your cattle to pray, whatever, to God. So we're also um, engaged in a little comedy, but then it's kind of a a lecture on um, the merciful versus the vindictive God. God starts off all vindictive, and you don't know why Jonah's upset about this, but then you, you get the reveal at the end. Jonah knows that God ultimately is merciful and knows yeah. that if I go do this— God is going to forgive them, and I'm going to have to sit there and watch these people who are responsible for so much wickedness in our world, watch them be forgiven. And he would rather die than watch that happen. And speaking of watching, uh, mm-hmm. he go- <laughs> we get to a booth. He goes to the, uh, to the, to the you know, one side of the town and makes himself a booth. I don't know what that means. I don't know what, what booth means in this context. Um, well, the the Hebrew word is Sukkah, and it's where we get the the uh, Sukkot, the oh, festival okay. of booths. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's basically just a uh, using branches and and stuff like that to create a little shelter. Well, but it's not good shelter uh, because the sun is beaten down on him, and uh, and the Lord decides to help out. And kind of, he kind of teases him a little bit. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. I I gotta say, this is one where I greatly prefer the King James version okay. to any other version because the KJV uh has says that it's a gourd. The Lord uh the Lord makes a gourd uh grow up over his head, mm-hmm. which I think is uh delightful. I don't know why there's a gourd. It um, how big is this gourd that the Lord has prepared? Well, and and it's got. Um, let's see. the The Hebrew word there is kikayon, and the own ending there can be a diminutive. So it's it could be like a little gourdet. A little so gourd. It's, it's, it's like, like it's... yeah, it's like adding ito to the end of a a, a Spanish word. So, oh my gosh. Um, well, I, the the NRSV has a, a bush. It says that the, God makes a bush grow to uh, to save him from to shade him and save him from his discomfort. I just like the idea that it's a gourd. I'm just I'm sticking with the KJV on this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, th- so God makes a gourd grow, and then uh, Jonah is uh, nice, is pleased by the gourd because it's it's a nice shade structure for him. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that night, God ruins the gourd or the bush with a worm. Just makes a worm go in, and I guess uh, eat the yeah. gourd or. Yeah. Ruin, somehow it ruins that. So the next morning there is no more shade, and again the sun rises, and Jonah, it's so hot he passes out. <laughs> he look he and then he gets mad again and says, "You know what? Kill me again." Yeah, this is and this is maybe the most suicidal guy 
in all of the Bible. I'm not well, sure. Well, I, I think this part is kind of um, poking him a little bit, being like, look at this whiny little brat. He's like, oh, it's sunny. Kill me now. It's better for me to die. <laughs> He's um, probably very pale. He, he was one of those... Uh, one of those Judeans that's that's super uh, redhead, very fair. <laughs> and then uh, God says, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then Adonai says, you're concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and, per- and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also a bunch of cattle. <laughs> yeah. Have mercy on the cattle, Jonah. <laughs> and literally, that's the end of the book. And that, yes, thus like, endeth the book of Jonah. Yeah, um, and also much cattle. Like, honestly, <laughs> again, I had to read this like six or seven times in different translations. Uh-huh. And I still don't have a handle on what the Lord is trying to say here, which is something along the lines of, Look, you you are some how how is he relating the bush slash gourd to Nineveh? I so I we, am not making that metaphorical <laughs> leap. The the idea is that uh, Jonah is so upset about the destruction of such a small thing, but is looking forward to the destruction of such a big thing. And God's like, you really want all these people to die? And also this cattle? Um, and, <laughs> and so it's, the cows. What about yeah. the cows? Yeah. What about the cattle, Jonah? You <laughs> never think of the cattle. Um, so it's, it's again, mixing um, this kind of rhetorical finger-wagging at people who want God to be vindictive mm. with a little bit of satire, with a little bit of parody. Because um, right. we're 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 enjoying uh, making fun of Jonah, but the me- there's also a message there. God is forgiving. Uh, God, you know, are you right to want God to um, to be vindictive uh, and to kill? And so it is. I think it's a pretty biting satire uh, on the prophetic genre, which so frequently is all about condemning everybody else uh, mm. to destruction. And here it's kind of um, poking fun at that, and also saying, "No, it's better to have, to believe in a merciful God, and our God is merciful." Okay, and and changes his mind apparently, and also change, yeah. And, and with that, you know, I think I think that'll be our good our good uh, segue point to get to uh, another idea of ways that God can act. So let's move on. Okay. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, seventeen seventy six, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. All right. Well, here we are. Uh, we're discussing the, the, the nature, the, 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 the character of the God of the Bible. And I'm, I'm just going to start this off with two different verses. Uh, we'll start with Titus 1, verse 2. Okay. Uh, which says that in the hope of life, uh, of, of eternal life, that God, who cannot lie, promised uh, before time began. And then uh, I'll, I'll also give us uh, Hebrews 6, verse 18, uh, which says, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to seize the blah, blah, blah. Anyway, both of them make it very clear. God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Take it away, Dan. <laughs> and, we, and we saw the same thing in Numbers, oh, where yeah. Balaam says, God is not a human, um, that he will lie, or a man that he will change his mind. So very clear. Uh, I guess that's, yeah. the end of, that's the end of the segment. Well, uh, it's, it's obvious that God doesn't lie. <laughs> it says so multiple times. End uh, of discussion. And, uh, and then we've got other parts of the Bible, because there uh -oh. are other parts of the Bible, and uh, those other parts of the Bible frequently complicate attempts to assert that one part of the Bible governs all of the Bible. So okay. I, I think we've got to lie pretty early on in the Hebrew Bible. At the very least, we have God saying something will happen, and then that thing does, just doesn't happen. Right. Um, and I have characterized this particular not happening thing as a lie. Um, and we, and I will say you've gotten uh, stitched about it numerous times. Uh, all, <laughs> yeah, people are mad all over TikTok for this yep. assertion of yours, and uh, and so we're we're gonna we're gonna dive into it. Yeah, people seem to be a lot more upset about me saying the God of the Bible lies than pointing out that the God of the Bible seems to enjoy slavery and polygamy <laughs> yeah. and things like that. So, um, so we have in Genesis 2 the creation of the human. And uh, in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you can certainly eat or you will eat. And this uses a, a construction that is known in Hebrew as the paranomastic infinitive. And you don't have to suddenly put your linguist caps on. But basically, we have an infinitive version of a verb followed immediately by the finite version of the verb. So an English equivalent would be here, it would be to eat, you will eat. This oh. means nothing in English. Yeah. But this has the force of 
the rhetorical force of kind of emphasizing the certainty uh, okay. that something will happen. And there are a bunch of nuances that can be added to this. But then we get to verse 17, where God tells the human, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall certainly die. And here the uh, the Hebrew is mot tamut. So it's that same paranomastic infinitive. To die, you will die. Insisting that the death is certain. Okay. You're going to eat... You're going to eat some things, but if you eat that thing, you are definitely going to die on that day. Yes, and it is uh, five words in Hebrew. Biyom ahalcha mimenu mot tamut. In the day, on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So then we've got the rest of what happens in uh, the famous story of the Garden of Eden. Spoiler the, alert. Spoiler alert. They go ahead and eat. <laughs> they um, eat. Yes, uh, I think it's been enough years. Um, I there was evidently uh, in my little video with Joel McHale, there was a spoiler alert about the Succession show, and oh. I didn't pick up on that, but a lot of people jumped on my case for that, and I was like, I thought this was in the past enough, but um, <laughs> um, but if the story of Adam and Eve is not in the past enough, then you're listening to the wrong show. Um, yeah. That one, so, that one goes back far enough. Uh, if yeah. you haven't read it, you're, that's on you. <laughs> that's 100% your fault. Um, now, the, we get the creation of Eve. Uh, Eve talks to the serpent who says, and, and it, says, it starts off by saying the serpent was wiser or craftier, if, uh, if you prefer, than all the other wild animals that Adonai, the deity, had made. And to uh, be clear, is, we're not talking about the devil. We're talking we are about, not talking about Satan or the devil. This is just one of the animals that God just, made. Just an animal. It may not be a serpent as we now know it. It may have had legs. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. it's not crawling on the ground just yet. Right, not yet. And uh, the serpent says to the woman, so, uh, so did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? And she says, no, we can eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. And, and this is not exactly what God said to Adam, to the human. This is a slight change where mm. we have this addition of you shan't even touch it. Yeah. Um, and and there have been a lot of speculations about you know, did Adam misreport the the thing? Did uh, Adam or did uh, God tell Eve, and then Eve is paraphrasing? Did um, did God tell it to Eve differently? Nobody knows. Really, it doesn't matter in the long run. In the story, Eve tells it a little differently. But then the serpent responds, "You will not die." God knows that when you eat of it, and I think let me look at the Hebrew. Yeah. On the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like the gods, knowing good and evil. So the serpent says, hey, God's really just playing with you because God doesn't want something to happen that's right. going to happen if you eat the fruit. Uh, and then the woman eats the fruit and, it, and um, gave some to her husband who was with her. And I've talked about this in some of my social media content. Some translations of the Bible omit the fact that the Hebrew very clearly states that her husband was with her. Right. Um, as, a, as a way to kind of blame Eve. Um, and he ate. And then the very next sentence says, 
Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So what the serpent said would happen happened immediately upon eating the fruit. Their eyes were opened, and uh, we get later on in verse 22 of chapter 3, God says, look, um, and I think he's talking only about the man. Yes, look, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, let's Kick him out. Yeah, you got to now because all of the lies about what will happen to you if you eat that fruit, uh, the jig <laughs> is up. Yeah. You got to kick him out at this point. Yeah, and and so there's some interesting things to to point out here. It seems the serpent was right at least about saying God's really doing this so that you don't become like the gods by having your eyes open, by knowing good and evil. The text explicitly has God acknowledge that they became precisely what the serpent said they would, and that's something that God doesn't want. And so to prevent some additional thing that God doesn't want, namely them living forever, which would be one of the two prototypical features of deity, all knowledge and immortality, they're going to kick him out. Now, this is after uh, the curses have been yeah. announced. Um, so the curses are that the the serpent uh, will slither on its belly, uh, will eat dust. The curse to the woman is that she will have pain in conception and in childbirth. The curse to the man is that he will uh, eat his food by the sweat of his brow. Uh, and the ground is cursed because of you. Uh, you and from dust you are, and to dust you will return. What doesn't happen on that day? <laughs> yeah, there seems to be one conspicuous uh, thing omission. Yeah, that yeah. that that doesn't occur. They don't die. Yeah, and a lot of people have tried to find a variety of different ways to rationalize this away, to harmonize verse 17 with the rest of the story. And this happened anciently. The book of Jubilees, which was probably written around the middle of the second century BCE, is actually the first to say, hey, what's really going on here is that a day is a thousand years according to the Lord, which is something that we see in the Proverbs and also something that comes up in um, one of Peter's epistles in the New Testament. Adam lived to be 930 years old. So in that day of the Lord of a thousand years, within that time period, Adam died. So guess what? Mission accomplished. Um, <laughs> On that thousand year day. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a Jupiter day. It's a, <laughs> what, what planet rotates slowly? I don't know. <laughs> so we, we basically have in the ancient world attempts to try to make the two dots connect. Right. Um, and then, so that's one of the... Um, techniques that people will use to try to insist that this was real. The most popular attempt to try to to make the statement in verse 17 accurate is to say that Adam did die because death is separation from God, and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, so on that day they died. Um, this doesn't work because Mot Tamut and the other different forms of that particular paranomastic infinitive that involve that verbal root though occur like 50 or 60 times, never once does it refer anything other 
than to straight up physical death, cessation okay. of your life. So it's not it's it's not used metaphorically or figuratively in any other context. It's not a spiritual death. It's not separation from God. The statement "you will certainly die" means precisely that you will certainly die. Now, the other uh, attempt that is made to try to reconcile these two passages is to argue that mot tamut is used as a uh, as a sentencing to death. And so the idea is not that the death will actually occur, but that you will enter into some state of being doomed to die. Your death is imminent in some way, shape, or form. And so the idea there is that uh, on that day, the certainty of their death was accomplished or something like that. But But this doesn't really... Um, work either. And and there are a variety of different reasons for it. Most of them having to do with the fact that that sense of that construction in Hebrew does not occur anywhere in the entire Hebrew Bible. That is a sense that must be imposed upon the text. And here, based entirely on the conviction that if God says it in Genesis 2.17, then it must be true. <laughs> However, we've already seen that God changes their mind. Uh, we yeah. saw that in Jonah. Um, it is elsewhere uh, in the Hebrew Bible as well. And so uh, I think probably the best way to make sense of this passage is that God is being represented as as uh, a little capricious here, kind of getting a little trigger happy with these threats. And I've compared it to uh, like a mom saying, if you touch my sewing scissors, I will kill you. Or a dad <laughs> saying, if you touch my guitar or if you touch my car again, I will kill you. And then they do it and they're like, Ugh, well, I have to punish you. And then coming up with something. <laughs> That's it. You're banished of, from the house. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get to live here anymore. Yeah. I'm setting up this cherubim out in the front yard <laughs> and um, he will mess you up. Yeah. Um, don't try to get past him. He's got a flaming sword. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Good it's luck. always something short of the original threat, which I suggest is is something that is a little hyperbolic. Um, and so, yeah, I think if we understand a lie to be something that is intended to deceive, uh, I think the idea here is that God was using the threat of immediate death uh, to disincentivize them from eating of that tree. It didn't work, and then God had to uh, settle for all these other punishments. Yeah, I, I, it, it's very, it seems very clear uh, that, yes, there was, there was uh, an untruth told in this moment. What I, I guess I can imagine what that must mean to a lot of people who uh you know who read those those scriptures that I that I sort of led into this thing with uh that says you know it's impossible for God to lie God right. cannot lie uh you know I I guess the framework has to in in order for that to, in order to make sense of that it's very easy if you're willing to acknowledge the multivocality, the uh, the 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 fact that like these were written, these accounts were written by different authors in different mm-hmm. time frames, and you know, and it meant different, you know, this the, even the character of God meant different things to these different people, yeah, uh, as they went on. But uh, I understand why people are so distressed when you point this out when they are you know when they've been taught and when they have committed to believing in a 
uh, univocal or, or, you know, heaven forbid, inerrant Bible. You've got a direct contradiction here. Yeah, and and those are those are just anathema within that worldview, which is one of the reasons that I think inerrancy is such a uh, a, a fatal flaw in a lot of Christian uh, and even some conservative Jewish worldviews, because it forces you into a position of having to just deny the plain reading of the text and come up with all this mental gymnastics to get around what is so clearly um, being stated in the text. But we have a, when we look at some of the precursors for this, like this is not unique within the literature of ancient Southwest Asia. In fact, there's this myth of Adapa, where you have this, this figure who's kind of a grand human champion uh, named Adapa, and they end up, they get upset with the wind while they're on their ship, and they break the wind, um, and this upsets some gods, and so Adapa is, is called uh, on to account, you know, um, I forget what the saying is, uh, called onto the carpet by the, the gods, and one of the gods tells Adapa before he heads up there, hey, don't eat the food of death that they're going to offer you. And Adapa is all wise. The text says Adapa is wise, and now... The other issue is um, mortality. The God says, don't eat the food of death. He goes up. The gods offer him the food of life, which would make him immortal. But he remembers what the other deity said. He refuses the food of life and so is unable to achieve immortality and is sent back down to earth as a mortal. And so in a story that many scholars have suggested, likely influence the development of the story of Adam and Eve, we have a deity telling Adapa, the human something, that ends up denying that human access to immortality, and that thing that the deity told the human was not accurate. And so even in a likely precursor, in some way, shape, or form to the story of the Garden of Eden, we have deception uh, or at least inaccurate information on the part of the deity. And there is uh, there's a, a, a book by a friend of mine, John E. Anderson. He wrote a book called Jacob and the Divine Trickster, A Theology of Deception and Adonai's Fidelity to the Ancestral Promise in the Jacob Cycle. There's scholarship on the fact that the notion of a trickster, the notion of someone who can manipulate others to get what they want, is idealized in some ancient... Southwest Asian literature, including in parts of the Bible, uh, where Jacob has to deceive and Abraham has to deceive in order to advance their interests. And in some cases, God is telling them to do this so that the ancestral promise can be fulfilled. And so we have the deity represented as willing to bend and break the truth so that their own prophecies and their own promises can come to pass. Um, and well, and there's what remind me what story I'm thinking of. There's a story of God sending uh, a prophecy to a prophet that is specific, or, or one of God's messengers says, "I'll go and I'll deceive the prophet right. to uh, to 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 so that the the bad thing happens to them in your right. name." Right? What, yeah. what am I thinking of here? So um, this is the story of Micaiah and uh, King Ahab. So Ahab wants to know if he's going to go up to Ramot Gilead to do battle. 
uh, and uh, Ahab has all his court prophets. And he says, should I go up? And they all say, yes, yes, you should go up. Um, you'll be fine. And then he says, what about that Micaiah loser? That guy, uh, he really gets under my skin. And he invites Micaiah out and says, shall I go up? And Micaiah's like, yeah, yeah, go up. Uh, Adonai will deliver you. And he's like, mm, I told you, this guy never tells me the truth. Why don't you tell me the truth? Uh, and then Micaiah says, you know, I saw the Lord sitting on their throne, surrounded by all the hosts of heaven. And God said, who will go entice Ahab up to Ramot Gilead for me? And a spirit came forth. And actually the Hebrew says, Haruach, the spirit came forth and said, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouths of his prophets so that he will go up and will fall at Ramot Gilead. And Adonai says, I like it. Go do it. And so um, Micaiah is telling the king, God is lying to you through your prophets because God wants you to die. And wow. then, and then, um, uh, <laughs> and then, one of the people, one of uh, Ahab's assistants, slaps Micaiah uh, <laughs> and says, "Are you going to speak to the the Lord's anointed that way?" And um, and kind of a, as a rhetorical question, uh, asks, "Is like which way did the did the uh, the spirit of the Lord go?" Something like that, and but identifies Haruah. Did he do any crazy spirit. Ivans? <laughs> Um, and he basically identifies this spirit as uh, the spirit of the Lord. And so wow. the idea there is that God sent God's very own spirit to go lie to the court prophets, to deceive Ahab to his death. So there are multiple parts of the Bible that represent the God of Israel as having no compunction whatsoever with deception and with lying. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. It's a, you know, the, the, these are God's prophets. They're doing their job. They're actually getting it right. They're saying exactly what God told them to say. <laughs> don't go up on that hill. Don't go. <laughs> don't you go up on that hill, though. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, thank you so much for that. This is, uh, I, we're going to get some letters. Uh, and you're welcome <laughs> to write into us. Um, our, our email address is contact at dataoverdogmapod.com. If you would like to uh, catch our show ad-free and uh, and get some free uh, bonus content every week, you can go to our uh, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/DataOverDogma and we'll uh, we'll we'll hook you up over there. Uh, you choose how much you want to donate to us. The more, the better. You get more. Uh, we we can promise you you will get uh, gifts in heaven for giving uh, unto us. Uh, that that's that's pretty much guaranteed. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody. Data Over Dogma is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. It is a production of Data Over Dogma Media LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.